0: Wow, to sing those words, when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Singing those words with the reality of loved ones that we know, just recently, who are currently singing that nobler, sweeter song. Loved ones that we know are on the doorstep of singing that nobler, sweeter song. Staring into eternity makes us remember why we're here. What are we doing here? Why do we gather? What's the goal Every time we gather together, what's the goal? And and I think we just sang one of the aspects of the goal. To prepare our hearts to sing a nobler, sweeter song. And notice that song is thy power to save. That Jesus has paid it all. And all to him we owe. Thank you to Luke and the rest of the music team for leading us so faithfully and excellently in worship through song. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope and trust that you do, Ephesians chapter 1 is where I want to invite you to turn. Ephesians chapter 1. Normally, we are in the book of Mark. We're going verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. We have been loving that series, and we will be back in the gospel of Mark in a few weeks. But these two Sundays, this Sunday and next Sunday, Lord willing, I wanted to press pause... I was actually encouraged to press pause by our leadership team. They said, "Hey, it'd be a good idea to go back and look at why we're here, gathering together as a church family because of our celebration of 10 years as a church." We uh, officially launched October 20th, 2013, so we're a little ahead. Um, but the month of October is our anniversary month and. There are many of you here, probably most of you here, who were not here for that launch service. We're not here for the many meetings that we had leading up to that launch service of praying and planning and preparing. And so, for these next two Sundays, I want to just go back, just answering the question why are we here? What's the purpose of being here? Why, why did we launch our church? Why are we a church? Why are we gathering together? What are the goals as we gather together? What is our purpose in being the body of Christ in the San Fernando Valley? So if you're here for the first time, normally we're in the Gospel of Mark. Normally just go verse by verse. This will be a little bit more all over the place in the Bible. So uh, bear with us in that. But as we're thinking through this question of why are we doing this? Why are we planting a church? Why are we a church? I had the privilege of going to a conference where uh, there were many different speakers. One was Al Mohler. He was speaking on uh, the church, Matthew 16, um, talking about what the church is, what makes the church the church, and God's promise to build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This was in uh, 2012, and so we were thinking, we were in the beginning stages of thinking through launching a church. And so I went up to him after the sermon, and I asked him, Uh, He had spoken of church planting. We had gone to some epistles. He had talked about Paul being uh, just the the master church planter. And so I asked him, if you were to give advice to, I was then 26, 27. If you were to give advice to a 26, 27-year-old on how to prepare to plant a church, uh, books to read, seminars to go to and listen to, conferences to attend, what would you suggest that I do? And his answer was, uh, read the book that's in your hand. I walked up there with my notes and my Bible. He said, read the book that's in your hand. That's all you need. Read the book that's in your hand. He said, read the book of Acts. Watch how Paul goes into the cities and shares the gospel. Watch how Paul goes into the synagogues and speaks with the religious leaders there. Watch how Paul goes and plants churches and shepherds them and gets them ready for more churches to be planted. Watch Paul on display. Go to the epistles. Listen to how Paul talks about governing the churches, about leading and shepherding and ministering to the churches. He said, go do a deep study on the way that the churches are run in the Bible and let your church plant come from that. So I did that. I did a deep dive into Acts and the epistles, even into Revelation chapter two and three, the epistles of Jesus to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And as I did that study and as we started talking and planning and preparing as a church to plant a church, We highlighted five main passions that the Apostle Paul had in the book of Acts and in his epistles that really uh, were, were the rudder for everything that he did. Five main emphases that he had in dealing with churches, in planting churches, in shepherding churches, and in governing churches. Five main passions that the Apostle Paul had for the church. These five are by no means exhaustive but they are an overarching banner that flies over everything that the Apostle Paul did, and it helped us as a church to think through why are we doing what we are doing? So this morning, I just want to go through these five different passions, but I want to start in Ephesians chapter one. I want to read this amazing text, starting in verse three, going all the way to verse 23, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time, and we will have an incredible time Diving into the word together. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of the glory of his grace. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory." Now, it's for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. These are the words of our living, holy, and awesome God. Let's ask him to write their eternal truths on our hearts such that we would walk out of these doors affected, changed, and transformed. Father, we do ask that you would do a work in our midst this morning. As we give careful attention to your word, we ask Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We ask that you, by your grace, would do exactly what Paul is asking, that you would open our eyes to see and to know the glory of God, to know how awesome you are and to be forever changed by that reality. God, we come into this place with so many fears and anxieties and burdens and hardships and trials. And I pray that you would lift our eyes off of those things to Christ. And that in doing so, as we see and savor Jesus that we'd be able to enter into those anxieties and those fears and those burdens with a transformed mind and a transformed heart and an ability to navigate those situations for your glory, to the praise of the glory of your grace. Be with us now as we study your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see our first of five passions that Paul had For the church, passion number one. Paul had a passion for the church to magnify God. Paul had a passion for the church to magnify God. This is really in verses three through 14 of what I just read in Ephesians chapter one. Paul is saying, look at who God is and look at what God's done. Look at everything that he has done. Look at his glory through the gospel on display in your life. Paul is writing to a church That knows Jesus, that loves Jesus. This isn't new information to this church, but it's soul stirring information. You can never get over the gospel. And so he's saying, remember the gospel. Sometimes we forget. We're prone to look inward, we're prone to let the problems of the world cloud our vision, and we forget the glory of God. The church in Ephesus is only a few decades removed from Jesus being crucified in Jerusalem. And yet they can forget. Their vision of God can become blurry. And in Revelation 2, Jesus writes a letter to them saying that they had left their first love just decades after this letter. They've left their first love. So they've gone from knowing about Jesus, they've gone from savoring him and loving him, they've gone to a place where they've forgotten and then they go to a place where they just completely leave. And if they are susceptible to forgetting, to not remembering, to not seeing the glory of God, how much more so are we? And so that's why Paul prays in verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And here's his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you A spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So I want you to be given a spirit of revelation and wisdom to know him. And then he goes on in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. My Bible says be enlightened. Literally it's be being opened. So it's a, it's a passive verb. It has to be done to you. And that's why he's praying, God, open their eyes. Be being open. May your eyes be being open by God. May he open your eyes. And it's an ongoing participle. May be being open. Continually, it's not a one-time thing. You got saved, your eyes were open, you're good, you're done, you move on. No, we forget. Paul prays, I want you to know God and I want you to keep knowing him in such a way where your vision of him is blown up and you see him rightly for who he is. That's why I use the word Magnify. I love that word because that word can mean two different things. It can mean uh, using a telescope to, to blow something up that's really tiny, that's minuscule. And so you magnify it so that you can see something that's tiny. That's not what we're doing with God when we magnify God. No, we're using the other definition. The other definition is using a telescope where something is enormous. You're looking at Jupiter, but it looks small because of the expanse of what stands between you and that item. That's exactly what happens for us and God. There is a creature, creator, creator distinction. There is an expanse between us and God. He is holy. He is set apart, and we are finite humans. And because of that, because of maybe it's our sin, maybe it's lack of fellowship, lack of time in the word, lack of understanding who he is, there are so many different reasons why he becomes smaller in our view. And that's why Paul says, God, please blow up the vision of God, magnify him in the eyes of the saints. I believe this is where most people in the American church are. They know that God is big, like they know that Jupiter is big, but something is in the way that makes them see God as small. They know he's big, but they see him as small. For us to Jupiter, it's 380 million miles, and that's why it looks small. For us in God, it's our sin. It's that creature-creator distinction. It's so many different things that just make us, we we know he's grand and glorious and awesome and holy, and we just start to see him as small. And so Paul says, I pray that your eyes would be open. I want you to see him for who he truly is. And so therefore, when we gather, Paul's passion for the church is that we'd magnify God. We'd make him gloriously on display. We make him big in the eyes of his people because we so often think he's smaller than he is. Therefore, the church as a whole, with all of our individual members, we are to be telescopes to one another. We're to to say with our lives and our actions, look at how amazing Jesus is. This is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, look at the preeminence of Christ, the majesty of Jesus, his deity, his character, his work. Paul knew the Old Testament well. He knew the Psalms. Just consider these passages. Psalm chapter 40, verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, the Lord be magnified. Psalm 34 verse 3, oh magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We're not saying let's make him bigger than he actually is. No, he is glorious. We're saying let's remember how glorious he is. He's become small in our view. Psalm 69 verse 30, I will praise the name of God with song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Paul does this practically in the book of Acts. Acts chapter nine, verses 20 through 23. This is the earliest recorded words of a newly converted Paul. He's not even Paul yet, he's still Saul. And he's preaching Jesus. He's saying, look at Jesus. I want you to see him for who he is. His sermon in Acts 13 is all about magnifying God in the eyes of the Jewish people. His sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17 is all about how glorious God is in his works, in his person. His testimony before Felix in Acts 24. His testimony before Agrippa in Acts 26. It's all about saying, look at how glorious God is and how he's changed and transformed my life. So we as individuals should be telescopes to one another. And then when we gather as a church, Our church is an observatory. That's what we are doing here in the San Fernando Valley. That's why we launched a church. We want a new observatory to stare at the magnificence of God, to say, come look, come see. When non-believers come and sit in our church, they should see Christ on display. That's why we love singing at CBC, that we want God to be put on display. And there are some truths that are just so glorious and grand that we can't just speak them. They have to be sung. And so Paul does that even in his own writings as he speaks of the glory of God. He just bursts into song. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So can I just ask you, is that why you gather? Is that why you show up on a Sunday morning? Does this happen in your heart when we gather together, where you're magnifying God, where you're using the telescope of fellowship, the telescope of God's word, the telescope of singing to be reminded that God is more glorious than anything we could possibly comprehend. And throughout the week, he has become smaller in our vision and our view because of our sinfulness, because of our forgetfulness. And so we're praying, God, blow that vision of you up in my mind so that our eyes would be being opened to the grand of God. Most people don't respond to God this way. God's just like a comet flying far off in outer space. You see traces of him. You go, ooh, look at that. That's cool. And then we go about our daily business. Most people do not respond in a way that honors God. He's not the most important person to them, practically and functionally speaking. Uh, Television or news on your iPhone is more important, practically speaking to you. You spend more time on your phone than in the word. The Bible itself becomes uh, less compelling to you than maybe a sporting event. Those people say that God exists the way that they would say a comet exists. He's out there doing his thing, shows up every once in a while, But practically, he's just not in the top 50 influences in my daily living. And that's why Paul says, no, 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 I want you to see him for who he is. Because if you see him for who he truly is, everything will change. We always say it when we get to Resurrection Sunday. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then nothing matters, right? 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is still dead, he hasn't been raised from the dead, nothing matters, we're all gonna die and then we stay dead and nothing's gonna happen, so nothing matters. But since Jesus has been raised from the dead, then nothing else matters other than that. Nothing else matters other than that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And that's what Paul's saying here. If there is a God who is this glorious, then nothing else matters other than him. We wanna be a church which would cause others to stop thinking of God as small, but to think about him And to see him as great as he truly is. Second passion. Paul has passion, number one, to magnify God. Paul has a passion, number two, to see and to savor God's glory. Paul has a passion to see and to savor God's glory. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul doesn't want to just end by magnifying God in your mind, by making you see him for who he truly is, see him as grand. He doesn't want us to just stop there. He wants us to then savor him. He doesn't want us to, to, to say, look at how big he is, and then walk away and continue about our daily living. No, we want to see and then savor our God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul is talking about The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant the law and the gospel and he's comparing the two and he's saying that the the law was glorious the old covenant was glorious and then the new covenant comes along the gospel comes along which is even more glorious so how much more glorious will it be if the old covenant was glorious he says verse 7 the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so the, the ten commandments had glory the old covenant had glory so the sons of God, the sons of Israel could not even look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading even as it was. How then will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For the ministry of condemnation has glory. That's the law. Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. The gospel's so much greater For that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And then here's the key verse, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image From glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What is Paul saying there? If you were to ask Paul, okay, I see God, and I want to be transformed. So I see him, and then what do I have to do? This is where a lot of Christians struggle. They say, I see the glory of God, and I want to live for him, so now I need to go do something. We so often confuse doing with transformation but I think if you would ask Paul Paul how are we transformed he would say not in doing works the doing is beholding look at this verse verse 18 we behold the glory of the Lord and because of that we are being transformed so how are we transformed Paul by beholding the glory of God now granted you're going to work once you behold the glory of God but you don't work in order to be saved you work because you are saved And once you understand who you are in Christ, then you're gonna work with a glad heart of gratitude and joy. How are you transformed? By glory. I don't think that there is a one of us in this room, if I were to ask, do you want to change? Do you want to be transformed? I think all of us would say in some way, shape or form, yes, I wanna be transformed. Paul would say, then you need to stare at glory. That's what transforms you. You have to stare at glory. Once we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed. But notice how he specifies it. We're transformed into the same image from a degree of glory to glory. It's a process. We want to be transformed, and we want to be transformed in an instant. I've heard this referred to as microwave Christianity, right? Come to Jesus, put the little popcorn button, beep, and it cooks for a minute, and we're done. Hooray, we're sanctified. But Paul says, no, it's in degrees. It's not in one fell swoop. It's a, it's a crock pot. You turn it on and you leave it alone and it just slowly works throughout the day. One author says it this way. Many Christians, especially newer Christians, long for a method of discipleship that will change them quickly by just following a few clear and doable steps. I would caution you from pressing too hard for such a foolproof method. Comes from a good place, but he says I'd caution you. Such approaches to growth and change often lead to disillusionment and sometimes a crisis of faith because you're asking, why is this not working for me? God's way of growth is more like the watering of a plant or the feeding of a baby than the building of a wall brick by brick with a manual in our hand. When you build a wall that way, you can see every brick put into place and measure the progress. We hold the brick, we apply the mortar, we place the brick, and voila, growth. But Christian growth is not like that. It's more organic, it's less in our control, and it's usually far slower. That's why Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we're like newborn infants, that are slowly growing. Just think about all the babies that we have at CBC, all the little ones. At the end of the day, do you wake up in the morning and at the end of the day, can you see noticeable growth? No, not really. How about at the end of the week? Maybe. At the end of the year? Totally. We saw that even in the pictures yesterday at the 10-year anniversary, looking at our own kids and seeing, wow, they've dramatically changed. We don't see that change from day to day, but if you look at a snapshot from years ago, you see that change. Did the change happen because of your control over the child? Did you make the growth happen? Did you add the inches? Did you add the pounds? No, you fed the child, you bathed the child, you protected the child, you you, you did all those things, and God's the one who gave the growth. The spiritual life is the exact same way. By the way, this is why we do what we do when we gather together as a church. Every Sunday, we gather, and the Word of God is preached. And most sermons are not memorable sermons. I I wonder if anybody knows the points that I made in the sermon last Sunday. Guess what? I don't. (laughs) I'd have to go look at my notes. It was in Mark, it was about disciples. I don't remember. But I know that that sermon kept me alive. I know that that sermon kept my heart growing with affections for Christ. Do you remember what meal you ate for lunch on September 16th? No, but I know you had a meal. I know it kept you alive and I know it brought you to where you are today. Most times, sermons are not memorable. Most times, small groups are not memorable. But that's okay because that's not what they're designed to do. Our gatherings together are like meals. They keep us alive. And some of them we will remember forever. But most of them, they're just nourishment that sustain us and remind us, keep growing in Christ. So we savor glory and we're transformed by savoring that glory from degree to degree slowly but surely. And then we get to work. We absolutely get to work, but we do that only after staring at glory. It's glory that saves us. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. God needs to open our eyes so that we would behold his glory, and then we get saved. And then Paul says, you don't leave from staring at glory. Don't stare at glory, get saved, and walk away. Stare at glory, get saved, and then keep staring at glory and get sanctified. That's why we gather together. So we would stare at glory together, magnify God in our view. And then by staring at him, we would see and then savor and love his glory. So Jonathan Edwards said this regarding his own preaching of the word of God. He said, I should think myself in the way of my duty. This is my job. I love this quote. I believe this is my job as well. He says, this is my job as a preacher to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can provided that they are affected with nothing but the truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. So it has to be affected by the truth and not conjuring up emotions. I don't want to manipulate your emotions. I want you to be affected by the truth. And then secondly, if you are affected by the truth, then your affections will lead to a life that aligns with the truth. And if it, if it leads to a life that doesn't align with the truth, you weren't affected by the truth. But I love that. When you think of the Puritans, we would tend to think, what would they say is the highest goal in preaching? And I think often we'd say the highest goal in preaching is to give information to the people. Jonathan Edwards says, no, that's a secondary goal. The information is a means to an end of raising the affections. That's why I use the the language of affection so much. I want you to love Jesus. I want to love Jesus. Jesus. I want all of us together to love Jesus because if we do that, if we love him, then naturally we're gonna grow. Naturally we're gonna love his word and be in his word. Naturally we're gonna love fellowship. Naturally we're gonna love prayer. I want us to love Jesus. The only way that we do that is by tasting and seeing that he is good. So we see and savor him. We magnify him and we see him and we savor him. Paul's third passion. Number one, to magnify God. He had a passion for the church to exist, to magnify God. He had a passion for the church to see and to savor God's glory and be transformed by it. Number three, he had a passion for the church to make disciples. He had a passion for the church to make disciples. This is 2 Corinthians chapter five. You can turn to the next chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verses 11 through 21. We are ambassadors of God. We are ambassadors of our missionary to Albania, Micah Turner, preached an excellent message on this passage. I don't even have to read all of it, but he says in verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, this is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11, we persuade men. We want to persuade you to follow the Lord. He says, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us, compels us. It's the love of Christ that, makes us do this. We love Jesus so much and we want to go out and tell others to love him as well. If you drop down to verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new have come. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what Jesus did. He reconciled you. So, verse 20, we are ambassadors for christ as though god were making an appeal through us to you and we beg you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god i remember one pastor asked me patrick are you above begging is begging too low for you or would you get on your knees and plead with somebody please follow jesus Paul says that, I I beg you, be reconciled. And he lived it out, right? He didn't just say it. He lived it out. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. He plants a church in Thessalonica to make disciples. I want you to follow Jesus. And he founds a church. He's the founder of that church. In Acts chapter 18, he plants a church in Corinth. He stays there for a year and six months on his second missionary journey. In Acts chapter 18 through 20, he goes to Ephesus. It's his first visit to Ephesus. And he is there for three years, admonishing, pastoring, shepherding with tears he says pleading with people to repent and come to Christ his whole life was given to telling people be reconciled to Jesus and I've had people tell me well yeah but Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus and talked to him personally he said you're going to go do this I'm commissioning you to do this and it'd be a lot easier for me if I had a personal commission by God to go out and share and make disciples to which I say, okay, I think I understand what you're saying, but you have a personal commission, right? Matthew 28, go, make disciples. That is the great commission, as we say in church. We have the commission given to us by Jesus to go and make disciples. So my question is, how are you doing with that commission? How are you doing? Are you intentional? This is all discipleship is. We, we make it way too complex. All discipleship is, is intentional relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ, it's intentionally influencing people in your life to follow Jesus. It involves evangelism and it involves maturing in Christ. Discipleship is either you want somebody to come to Christ or you want somebody to become like Christ. It's either come to Jesus, be reconciled to Him, or grow in Christ's likeness. And that's why we gather as a church. It's in the context of a local church that that happens most effectively. Some people asked when we were getting ready to launch our church, do we really need a new church to do this? Don't we have enough churches in the valley as it is? And the simple and honest answer is no. Just listen to some of these statistics. There are over 1.8 million people in the San Fernando Valley alone. Just think of this context. The San Fernando Valley, we have almost 2 million people here. And right now, less than 10% of the valley would be reached if every church building in the valley was filled to capacity for two full services every Sunday morning. Less than 10% of the valley. To say it another way, in order to reach every single soul in the valley, we would need to have 1,800 churches planted in the valley with 1,000 people attending each church. Not only are there far less than 1,800 churches in the valley, but also the majority of the churches in the valley are not churches that we would call healthy churches. Bible-believing, expository preaching, Christ-exalting, faithful in discipleship and evangelism. 83% of the United States is unchurched. Said conversely, only 17% of the United States attends church regularly, which is on a weekly basis. 81% of the churches in America are dying or plateauing. And on average, in a community, 82% of the people are unchurched or unreached by any church around them. That's why we planted a church. We need more lampstands in the San Fernando Valley to be able to reach more people. We need to equip people, empower people, and evangelize We gather for the purpose of equipping the saints, and then we scatter for the purpose of evangelism. We need to do that. That's why we planted 10 years ago. That's why we want to plant as a church in the future. As we grow and as we develop new leaders, we want to find leaders that can replace other leaders, and then we want to send those leaders out and plant more churches. In a very functional way, we were able to do that through the Turners in Albania. They planted a church in Albania Because we were able, by God's grace, to equip them, empower them, and send them out to Albania, where they planted a church. We want to keep doing that as a church. Paul had a passion to magnify God, to see and savor God's glory. He had a passion for churches to make disciples. But then he also had a passion, number four, to shepherd those disciples. He had a passion for shepherding, obviously. I mean, that's the Apostle Paul. So often we can think of the Apostle Paul as a missionary, which he is, but he's also a shepherd. He doesn't just plant churches and leave. Sometimes he comes back to visit. Sometimes he writes letters to help them. Sometimes he sends friends to go get a report and bring it back. Sometimes he sends leaders who were equipped to do the work of the ministry in those churches. Sometimes he did all of those things. But he never said to a church, I did my work, I'm leaving you, and I'm forgetting about you. He always shepherded them. Said another way, his goal wasn't just Get in the race, right? So often we think of discipleship as just get in the race, right? Evangelism is just get in the race. Follow Jesus. Just become a Christian. And then once we do that, we've done our job. We've made Christians. We've made disciples. Hooray. Paul says, no, no, no. That's the very beginning of your job. Now shepherd them to glory. Now shepherd them to glory. This is one of the reasons why I, I desired to be involved in local church ministry. There were other options in ministry that I was thinking of. There were different aspects of music ministry and uh, touring with a band and things like that. And I thought, those are great. I got to do that for a season. I got to preach the gospel to thousands of kids you know, every other night and be able to do that. It was so much fun. It was an amazing experience. And I loved being able to share the gospel. But guess what? I don't know any of those kids to this day. I don't know where any of those went. All those thousands of people that I was able to share Christ with, I don't know where they're at. I don't know what they're doing. And I think Paul, in his example, says, I'm going to go, I'm going to plant, but then I want to make sure I get all of you safely home. I want to know how you're doing. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, says that he strengthened the disciples with the truth of God's word and with hard words. He strengthened the churches. Acts chapter 15, verse 41, he strengthened the churches when he went to them. He empowered them. He encouraged them. Acts 16, verse 40, he encouraged the church. Acts 20, he shepherded the church. He does this in so many different ways, but he cares deeply for the sheep to be shepherded, protected, fed, fed cared for, nurtured, loved, and ultimately presented before Jesus, blameless with great joy. That's why he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, we preach Christ and we preach Christ to every single person, admonishing every single person so that we can present every single person mature and complete in Christ. So Paul had a passion for the church to magnify God, to see and to savor God's glory, to make disciples, to shepherd those disciples. And then fifth and finally, to treasure Jesus above all things. Paul had a passion for the church to treasure Jesus above all things. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I love this text. This is one of my favorite passages. Verse one, Paul says, I wish that you'd bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you're bearing with me. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So he's saying, I, I he says, bear with me in a little foolishness. I'm gonna give you an example here. And here's the example. I want you to be pure in your love for Christ. I want you to be pure in your devotion to the Lord. But then he says, verse 3, but I am afraid. Every time I read that phrase, that just trips me up. The Apostle Paul is never afraid. You never see this guy being afraid. My favorite example is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. He's going to Lystra, goes, shares the gospel in Lystra. They pick up stones, throw him out of the city, stone him to death. We don't know, there's a kind of a debate over, did he actually die and God raised him from the dead? Or was he just unconscious under a pile of rubble, uh, but not actually dead and people revived him and they brought him back to life? Either way, this guy's pummeled with stones, bloodied and beaten, unconscious to the point where the whole city that hates him thinks he's dead. And once he comes to, he goes right back into that city and says, You need to hear of Jesus. If I'm the Apostle Paul and that happens to me, I would shake the dust off my feet and say, okay, I guess God doesn't want this city to hear the gospel. Paul's fearless. You never see this man afraid. And yet in this passage, verse 3, I am afraid. That's that Greek word where we get phobia, phobeo. This is terrified, This is something that has gripped his heart. And even in the sentence structure, in the New Testament in Greek, sentence structure, the word order matters. And if you want to emphasize something, you put it at the very beginning. And the first word of verse three is phobeo. I am terrified. So that that gets my attention. Paul, what are you terrified of? I'm terrified that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, I'm terrified that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What is Paul's greatest? Fear. His greatest fear is that two professing believers, Jesus would become an afterthought, not your every thought. That Jesus in your mind would be somebody that you cease to be amazed by and you make it complex. Look at what he says. I want simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. The opposite of that is complexity and a diluted devotion to the Lord. I don't want anything to mingle with your love for Jesus. No other love competes. And don't make this complicated. Just love him. He says, I'm afraid that the, the devil, the serpent, will do that. He'll lead your minds astray. I love how he says it's your minds. Lead your minds astray. This is why he said earlier in the last chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that our thinking of him, going back even to magnification, that we would see him for who he truly is and think rightly about who he is. How does Satan deceive us, lead us astray? Well, he uses our language. He uses Christian terms. He even uses the scriptures. Remember, he did that with Jesus as we looked at the temptations. He quoted scripture to Jesus. He just gives it different definitions. He twists it. And he's always asking this question. Every temptation you will ever experience is this question. Did God really say, and is God really enough? Every temptation. Did God really say And God's holding out on you. Remember with Eve, God's holding out on you. Did he really say you're gonna die? I don't think you're gonna die. Actually, he's holding out on you because he knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll become like him and he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants you to just be stuck where you're at. And so the apostle Paul says, I want you to have such a devotion for Jesus that you would hear those temptations. Did God really say, is God really enough? And you would say, he's my everything. That's why he says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, Jesus being God, very God, will come to have first place in everything. We talked about this a few weeks ago, in everything, not over everything, but in everything. We often say, uh, you know, typical youth group phrase, that God wants to be number one on your list. Paul would say, no, God doesn't want to be number one on your list. God wants to be your list. So he's not one and then family and then job. No, he's number one. He's number two. He's number three. He's number 98. He's every number because he's everything to you. And so you live every aspect of your life in relation to him because he is the totality of your list. Said another way, Paul says in Philippians chapter one, verse 21, which is my favorite verse in the scriptures, to live is Christ. He's my everything. And then death is gained just because I get more of him. I want more of him. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Can I ask you this morning, is Jesus everything to you? Is he everything to you? Paul's fear is that he would become something, but not everything to you. Paul had five passions. These are just five. There's others. But Paul had a passion to magnify God. He wanted the churches to magnify God, to see and savor God's glory, to make disciples, to shepherd those disciples, to treasure Jesus Christ above all things. And so, that really became my passion, kind of became my life mission statement. I want to exist and live every day to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all things. And as we started planning together and thinking about the church plant, we said, well, let's make that our mission. That's our goal. Everything that we do as a church, we exist as CBC. We were planted 10 years ago at CBC. We were planted for the express purpose of magnifying God, spreading a passion for his glory because only glory changes and transforms. We don't want people to just fall into a formula, routine, no, glory. We want you to see and savor Christ. Magnify God, spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and then shepherding those disciples to love, value, cherish, treasure Jesus Christ above all things. Maybe what you can do on your own time, maybe after the service with somebody, maybe you go out to lunch, maybe you go to the beach with us, ask, of those five things, which are you struggling with? Where are you really walking with the Lord and finding victory and finding effectiveness in, in ministry? And where might you be struggling? Where could you seek help? Where could you grow? These are the reasons why we planted our church. And at the end of the day, Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. He's the one doing the work. We're not doing the work. He's doing the work. But he said, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. And I remember telling that group of 40 people, I said, I'm willing to bank my life on that verse. I'm willing to bet it all on that verse. Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I'll die for that verse. I'm going to bet my life on that verse. Do you want to bet your life with me? And I would encourage you all, it's worth it. Let's go all in to magnify God, to spread a passion for his glory, to make disciples and to shepherd those disciples to love Jesus more than anything in the world. Father, we thank you for your word that directs our thinking, that guides our passions. And now, Father, we just want to plead with you as we sing and confirm these thoughts through song, I pray that we would sing in such a way where this becomes our prayer. Even as we sing, I love you, my Jesus, I love you. Maybe we even confess as we sing. I don't love you the way I should. I want to love you more. But in this moment, right now, if ever I loved you, my Jesus tis now, I want to love you more, but God, make it so in this moment. For all of us here, make it so that we would love Jesus more than anything in the world. God, make it so even as we sing. We pray in your name. Amen.